Welcome to Small Business Big Impact. These are lessons from the trenches of running a business with a multiple bottom line. Purpose, people, planet, and profit. Get the inside scoop on what it takes to succeed at using business as a force for good. This is a special International Women's Day episode. So get comfortable, because we will cover a lot of ground with my guest Madeline Shaw. I think of Madeline as a titan in the social impact world. She has launched and led multiple impact ventures over 30 years. She and her business partner, Suzanne Siemens, founded Lunapads in 2000 and rebranded as Isle in 2020. Their company was one of the first in the world to champion natural menstrual care products and sustainable menstrual equity, and has proudly been a B Corp since 2012. Madeline is also a speaker, mentor, and author of The Greater Good, Social Entrepreneurship for Everyday People Who Want to Change the World. This book, and Madeline herself, is an invitation and support to everyday people to find their own way to empowerment and change-making through social entrepreneurship. It quickly becomes apparent that Madeline is profoundly committed to an expansive vision. She's not just focused on creating social benefit through business. She's working to redefine what success as a social entrepreneur means in a 21st century world. So, settle in and listen to what can happen when you commit to playing the long game. You've been on your own quest for a little while. <laughs> yeah, a little while is putting it in an, yeah. an interesting turn of phrase, uh, considering that it's 30 years this year, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. And so that brings us to the, the, what, you know, the theme. I always love coming up with the theme of being in it for the long game. Yeah. And I there's something that. about that that is... Uh, I feel like it's it's defining of a certain flavor of impact initiative. Yeah, it speaks to dedication, right? Like I, I mean, I, get, I think again, we're living in these times where it's like, hurry, you know, and scale fast and move fast and break things. And there's this kind of language and accelerators, and and you know, the the idea is that for some reason we think that things are supposed to go faster, um, and my view is is that you know when we're engaged in something that's meaningful to us and we are living in in accordance with sort of the nat more natural rhythms of nature where you know we need rest we take rest you know i mean look at how plants grow um i i really feel like this whole um cultural imperative around entrepreneurship with just hustle culture basically is the sort of the shorthand for it I think it's it's destructive and um to me perseverance isn't just like hammering it's like you know it's the work that my business partner and i suzanne have done with luna pads and isle has been kind of co-creating with something whose time now has come you know this whole idea of menstrual equity and sustainable menstrual care and all those things um that we've been talking about for 30 years are now very present in the media and very present in the public imagination. And, um, and, and I'm, I couldn't be more thrilled about it, but I don't think it could have happened any sooner, if you know what I mean. Yeah, some things take time and people takes time, culture takes time. 
yeah, the trees take time. Like nothing like, you know, no, no plant or is going, I've got to hurry up and grow. You know, I gotta, I gotta be bigger. I gotta, you know, it's like, this is, this is how they grow. This is a natural pace of life. I mean, I was listening to an interesting Ted talk the other day by an economist called Kate Rayworth. And she's the author of a book called um, Donut Economics. And she points out that the only thing in nature that grows with this like infinite exponential scale is cancer. And I thought that just set me back on my heels. I just thought, why are we forcing ourselves or why are we glorifying um, a growth pattern that only exists in this one super destructive way? <laughs> like, I just, I just don't understand it. So yes, perseverance and the long game. It's a wonderful theme. And thank you for helping me to craft that. Yeah, you're welcome. I'm curious to hear about a, let's say a recent watershed moment, because I'm sure there's been a few over the past three decades, <laughs> right? Um, where you had, I don't know, an epiphany or like it was like a big shift in in an area where you have felt resistance. Yeah. Um, well, I would point to, and I think a, a depending on where your listeners are, but in the province of British Columbia, which is, of course, occupied um, Indigenous land, but the province, the space that we know uh, colonially as British Columbia. Um, in 2019, the provincial government announced that menstrual products were going to be provided to all students in schools across British Columbia as a matter of, it was a ministerial some proclamation or something like it wasn't even debated like there wasn't even like oh you know let's go back and forth on this it was just like a, this ministerial boom like a proclamation that came from the minister of education and this like you know it to a lot of people it might have seemed like kind of a blip or maybe they didn't notice at all but for me as someone who you know a has dedicated my career to um supporting menstrual health and equity and B, as someone who in all my days as a student, including post-secondary student, never in a million years would you have been given a free pad or tampon under any circumstances. Like you would have had to come up with that 25 cents or that loony. I was even on a BC Ferries the other day and they're charging a dollar for menstrual products in bathrooms. Like just the idea that those products should be provided to anyone who needs them as a matter of basic human dignity, the way that if we go to a public restroom, there's soap, there are paper towels, there's toilet paper, there's everything that we need to take care of our bodies so that we can participate in life. Like no one's standing there going, oh, you have to pay for that toilet paper. Well, that's been the case for menstrual products, like in pretty much all of history until right now. So that's why that moment in 2019 was important. And Suzanne and I were invited to um, kind of a media event, a school in New Westminster. And there were so many politicians there. There was the Minister of Education and there was there was the president of the United Way and there were, you know, teachers and there were people from school boards and trustees and 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 suddenly and the room was literally filled with pads and tampons. It was amazing. Like there were just every was piles of them. And and I just thought to myself, like after, and that was 2019, you know, so whatever, 26, seven years of doing this, like they, this has become something that people finally are like, yeah, yeah, periods, let's talk about it. Let's talk about products and 
And so I was thrilled because it was so much more than just, um, you know, the, the accessibility. It's about it, like menstrual equity has many components and products are only one of them. Um, but they're a vital one of them because obviously, you know, periods need to be managed. And but the the whole idea that these these people um, and a good at least half of them were men and they were like, you know, they're all excited and and vibrant and nobody was kind of, you know, using weird language or anything. And and I was like this this like to see that kind of level of meaningful change in my lifetime. Thanks in in many ways to the efforts of myself and my business partner and many of our colleagues to create a sea change so that a government is coming out and saying, yes, you know, we must, must do this as a matter of basic human, human rights and social justice. You don't get that overnight. You do not like that. And that's <laughs> going from, that's going from do not talk about it and yeah. you must pay to how can we help you? you know, and, and let's go. And so, and we're seeing this and, you know, it's not just BC, like this is, you know, Scotland was famously the first country in the world to declare that menstrual products should be free for all of its citizens. So this is like, there's this major sea change that has happened in the last, uh, it probably started kicking off around 2015. Um, that things started to get really, really interesting in this space and people started, you know, governments and legislators and they started taking state tax off and the GST was rescinded in Canada on menstrual products and, you know, just all these, these elements of combination of social things and legislative things and public leaders speaking about it and, um, and, and also this kind of advent of reusable menstrual products um, becoming commodified, which is, kind of a double-edged sword, speaking of swords. Um, and yeah, so it, it's, it's, I'm so thrilled because like for a long time, I mean, we were, we were ahead of our time for so long and, uh, and now it's kind of caught up and it's, it just feels like we're in this, um, I don't, it's momentous. It's a sea change. And, and for the most part, like for 90% of it, I'm, I'm so grateful and inspired and, uh, just sort of overwhelmed with gratitude and just even watching these things change every day. And it, it's amazing. So, yeah. So has that Lacona victory, that victory settled in enough that you, you find yourself looking to what's next, either in this, on the horizon of, of this journey or another? Yeah. I mean, we are still in it. That's the thing is like, I mean, in real time we're, we're running a business and we're, you know, just coming out of COVID and got hit with huge, like all the things that every other business dealt with in COVID. So, you know, huge supply chain issues and shipping cost increase and a third of our staff deciding they wanted to do something different or move somewhere. I don't know, like, like just, it was extremely challenging. And so I guess what I would say is that even though um, like none of this is easy. It has never been easy. That persistence piece of things that is like, you know, um, the raw work of it, um, has been and remains challenging as gratifying and as rewarding as it is, um, materially in the marketplace, it's, 
Oh my goodness. I mean, we've seen some really brutal examples recently of, you know, competitors of ours um, getting taken on with class action lawsuits in the period under worse space because of the presence of PFAS chemicals and their products. And so there's been just, which is really on one level, incredibly disappointing because it's kind of speaks to sort of a fast fashion approach that's come into the reusable space, um, which you know, yay, it's, it's, it's an opportunity. It's kind of like, you know, the periods are the Klondike, I guess, or the, you know, the wild west of menstruation, but here we are. And so there are a lot of people coming, like mainstream capitalism is coming into our space because there's huge dollars in it. And so that, you know, it's kind of dismaying, but also means that, you know, an entire market is being educated about the existence of these products and hopefully we'll be able to make choices that are sustainable like aisle products and so I say when it when you ask me what am I looking forward to I mean a big part of my work right now is working with institutions like post-secondary and municipalities and employers um, because they're taking this menstrual equity piece kind of to the next level like this isn't just for you know, grade eight students on their way to a math class like this, if we truly want to achieve in the era of climate emergency, sustainable menstrual equity, we need to be using reusable products instead of just, you know, telling somebody they need to find a tampon somewhere every three hours. Like it's just not actually a practical solution, all of these disposable products on a very practical level. Um, so what we're seeing now is like universities placing huge orders and just giving their students for free menstrual cups and period underwear and cloth pads, and they're having workshops and they're, you know, having events and it's just wow. it's fabulous. Like, and, but if you think about it, it makes all the sense in the world. It's like, these are people who are young and therefore are menstruating, um, who are busy, who don't have a lot of money, um, our entire future is riding on them. So let's set them up to be able to go to class and manage their periods. And so they're, you know, they're not missing out on activities and they're not um, missing out on their studies. And it's just, it's great. Like there are, there's some of the young leaders right now who just get it. And they also get the sustainability of it. They're like, okay, well, we know that if we just want to, you know, put even more disposable pads and tampons everywhere, then all that's going in a landfill. And so, you know, what's, and then it's kind of this endless cycle, right? You're just sort of forcing someone to keep going and finding the next one. And then three or four hours later, finding another one, so on and so forth. So I, I can foresee, I guess my big dream right now is universal cost-free access to quality, safe, sustainable products. And I think that's achievable. Like I, I really do. And um, with governments getting on board, we're, we're uh, going to get um, a big announcement from the federal government any day now on this topic as well. So I, I think it's wonderful to be able to have a dream, like, especially when we're in these times of climate emergency, um, as I just said, where it's like, oh, like, how are we going to course correct on that? Like I, it's so big. Whereas menstrual equity, this is achievable. Like we're doing it right now. And so I, I feel amazing about it. And I've, um, and in the meantime, my entrepreneurial wheels are continuing to spin just because, um, they do. Yeah. It's interesting. You talk about your entrepreneurial wheels and at some point in either in your book or in 
conversation you talked about seeing yourself as like a regular person actually a, you know a feminist academic who decided to pick up business as a means to to an activist end yeah but you've been at it for 30 years so i guess you can now can see yourself as also an, as an entrepreneur Oh yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. And, and I, so I was just actually was interviewed for a, a video earlier. And to me as a feminist entrepreneurship was like the wonderful way for women and non-binary people to be able to deploy the tools of business in the service of social change, because you're not fighting your way through these massive organizations, you know, that are dominated by cis white heterosexual, et cetera, men. And it, and so if you, you know, start your own thing, it's, it's deeply creative, it's deeply independent and it's very accessible. So yeah, I think it's, it's amazing. And I, and I, I wouldn't have like done it otherwise, you know what I mean? Like, I don't think I would have been able to find myself in any kind of a mainstream business environment. And, um, and so, yeah, to, for me, like feminist leadership led very naturally to entrepreneurship in that way, because I just, I had zero buy-in to the mainstream business world in the first place. And so I was not attached. And yet I recognize that there's, it's a source of power, right? And if we just sit back and go, oh, well, I don't want to get my hands dirty with the money or, you know, whatever, then, then you're basically relinquishing power, right? And letting the folks who've always run the show continue to run the show. And meanwhile, like to go back to your point earlier about everyday people, like I had this really powerful insight in the early 1990s that menstrual products were filled with chemicals that were giving me allergic reactions. And there had to be a better way to manage periods that was safe and didn't give people infections and didn't, and, you know, didn't take 500 years per product to biodegrade in a landfill. Like come on. And so, it, yeah, so I, my crazy wild idea um, that so long ago people thought was um, totally transgressive and outlandish and outrageous now has precipitated, you know, an entirely new market segment and, and political change. Uh, again, you know, the, the fruit of being in it for a long time with great commitment. And I, I, the thing that comes to mind for me is like I, we talk, you talked about how challenging it has been over the years, especially sort of being a voice in the wilderness, wilderness for a while, right? Mm -hmm. Where did you find the strength? Where did you find the resources to to pull it off? Mm. How did you manage it? You're a human being. I'm still working on it right now, Jalen. Um, yeah. So, okay. So for starters, I think for social entrepreneurs, our vision and our mission, like it's everything, like we kind of fall in love with an idea and that's a really important feeling because you're always able to draw on it. Like ever since, to be honest, I've been in this for longer than 30 years. Like when I was a kid, when I was 11, before I'd even started my period, I thought it would be, I thought it was so fascinating. It's like, how, how was it? that the average human menstrual cycle was the exact same number of days as a lunar cycle. Like I still remember being a kid and just being like that knocked my socks off that one piece of information. I'm like, how is it, how is it that not everybody's talking about this? Like, it seems like the most obviously fascinating, amazing mystery that we are so deeply connected to the most powerful, you know, the cyclical nature 
um, that we see in the tides and the seasons and um, in so many ways that we're, that we are living that, that we have that like internalized in our bodies. Um, and it's so fascinating. So I, so, okay. So thing number one, having a powerful vision and mission and something that matters to you. Um, but number two, it, it's all about relationships. Everything is relational. So in my case, I have an amazing business partner, um, Suzanne Siemens. We've been working together since we met in 1999 and incorporated what was then called Luna Pads in 2000 and have been working together. I saw her earlier today. We were working together and, um, and, and in an even bigger sense, like just the people around you, like I think about the SVI community and Hollyhock and how that's been such a huge, you know, thing for me being B Corp, um, being involved in the Coralist community, formerly known as CEO. And this, these networks of other people where you're, you know, you can get advice, of course, but just moral support and checking in because this is a very human, it's a very emotional journey. Like you're not just going, I'm going to go make tons of money and, you know, whatever, ha 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 kind of thing. Like this is a deeply human challenge that takes us out of our comfort zone that will challenge us in ways that we cannot anticipate. Like it is like the hero's journey, like I talk about in the book. Um, you are accepting a very unique challenge when you become an entrepreneur and you will be tested in ways that you cannot imagine. And, and therefore you need other people because that, that is how those problems will always be solved. Always. Because you can mm -hmm. never truly do something by yourself. Like it's literally impossible. Right. And so I think the more the quality, somebody asked me the other day, they asked, they said, what are you the proudest of in your business career? And I said, the quality of the relationships that I've been able to create with other people. That's really significant, I think, because I mean, there's a, there's a general perception of business out there by many people of it's a, it's a dirty thing. It's a, it's a not necessarily a positive thing for, I don't want to get into it too deeply, but the whole idea of business as a force for good is like blows some people's minds, just the fact that that, that exists. And, but in part of it is the fact that there's money involved, right? And money can make things strange in, in all kinds of relationships. And to be able to maintain a business for 30 years and be pr proud of the relationships and have, you know, have strong relationships, that's maybe even more impressive than whatever amount of money you might've made. Well, yeah, because thank you for saying that. And like, I've got to say the, uh, like this practice, like what we have chosen to do and the way that we've chosen to do it has not been lucrative. Like it has not been financially, you know, anybody who thinks that we're, we're making tons of money is is not correct. Um, that's, but that's okay. I mean, we're in it for impact. We need to make enough money. The, the business needs to be sustainable. Like, I mean, that's no mission or no margin, no mission as, as a wise person once told me. Um, but it's a holistic thing. It's like, you're, you're managing all these different things at the same time. And I, and also money it's reality. Like there's an economy out there and if we're going to do anything. We have to participate in it, in it somehow. And we certainly need to be participating in it if we're going to change it. So, I mean, I too came from a place like when I graduated from university, I believed that business was an inherently extractive activity. Like 
that was just that like you were you were in it for the money and um and i've since come to understand that these these things these institutions these ideas um were all generated by a person or a group of people over time and that as such as a product like there are no immutable laws out there like these you know all of this is subject to what we actually choose to create as as human beings and so things like the b corp movement and you know we're seeing entire new like post-growth entrepreneurship as another fascinating field that i love like that is just questioning this this mandate like i i believe what we're seeing in the space right now is um green businesses that are being asked to grow the way that you know this kind of mainstream um 10x you know we want it to be sustainable and we want to you know we've got our esg reporting and we you know whatever but we still want our money and it's like i i think there needs to be a different approach because these things do cost money like if you want to have really sustainable fabrics and you want all your products to be properly tested um for pfas and other chemicals and you know you want to be truly size inclusive and so you do a ton of product development that's very specialized around size and you like all of these things or even being a b corp it costs tons of money and and so when somebody's like well i want i want all the green stuff and i want all the esg goodies but i still want you know you need to be making the same kind of margins as a traditional business like it's just not possible and I, I that's something i came to terms with a really really long time ago and you know our returns for our investors are largely in impact and that's what they're looking for and that's what we have been looking for and if we can create a venture that pays our salaries and helps us support our families and our you know whatever teammates and so on great but it has not been easy and i think anybody who thinks that like if if you really do like if you are someone who has needs you know significant needs if you're carrying a whole bunch of debt and you think that you're going to you know walk into being a social entrepreneur and be able to manage you know high demands financially in your life i there are a lot of trade-offs in there like i think the idea that you've yeah, there's a cost to everything. And I think that sometimes when in the social entrepreneurship space, there can be a bit of magical thinking and just the idea that because your intention or your vision is so good and true and amazing and impactful that therefore, A, you will have that impact and that the, you know, somehow a magical business model will wrap itself around this amazing vision that you have. Like, uh it's it's the same as anything else it's it's in fact it's even harder it's like if i'm going to build a business you know making a conventional extractive i don't know something like that i'm not doing any sustainability any social impact kind of stuff doing that is hard whereas a social entrepreneur you're doing all the same stuff you got to go and find the right customers and your costs and the you know whatever people and technology and so on but you've got to do it in a way that minimizes harm and you know you were trying to make the most ethical most sustainable choices at all times and so just the volume the amount of work that that adds to what you're doing is huge and the cost as well so it's not for the faint of heart but i i'm a huge believer in it and i've had the most incredibly rewarding gratifying career and i'm nowhere close to done yet <laughs> i'm so glad
I'm interested about with the um, walking this fine line of like being a business and like staying true to your vision, like the, the impact vision, whilst needing to also also you know managing the cultural influences of well, this is what a business should look like. This is how it should operate. And you know, you talk about like well, there there aren't ma- massive margins in in social impact business because in part because they're not there's not all this massive externalizing of expenses right mm-hmm. uh and that's where the costs to the environment and to people and to everything else come from so are there any strategies that you and your team have used to try to help you keep to your north star in the face of all of this the the t- these tides of influence and expectations yeah. Um, oh, there's so many. Um, that's a great question. I mean, it's uh, it's definitely a team effort. Like we try to be, you know, I was listening to my business partner, Suzanne, conduct a team meeting uh, last week, earlier this week, about product development. And it was truly like every single person had a say in what they thought um, about, you know, certain products and how they should be made and who they were for and, you know, all this stuff. And it was one of the most inclusive, democratic, like she was honestly there not going, this is what I think it should be, but I'm going to hear these people out. It was like, we're building this together. And uh, I think it's, I think leadership is huge. And watching her, like, she's truly a kind of a they call it a servant leader or someone who is seeking to draw the best from the group as opposed to impose her will on what's going on. And again, it's not like that can be a very cumbersome management. Like if you are truly being inclusive and truly listening to everybody and truly being democratic, as opposed to just like, okay, this is just what I think I'm going to do. And then I'm going to tell everybody to go and do it. Like there's, there is some efficiency to that, I suppose. Um, and, but just watching it in action is, is really powerful. And it goes back to that relational piece that I was referring to, because I think the benefit of doing it, even though maybe a bit slower and, and so on, is that you get loyalty, you get people who feel seen and valued as part of the organization, not just someone who's delivering, you know, a component of your service or whatever, um, it's just a different worldview. Like, I think it goes back to the, if you want to see, if you look around the world and you want to see something different, then it's on you. Like go and what is that thing? Like go take it upon yourself. Um, and I encourage this so strongly in the book, like, you know, even if it's something that, that you, like you wish somebody would do something about that thing, you know? Like, well, sunshine, maybe it's you. And like, seriously, because we, I think if we're waiting for other people to give us permission or to have the right little sequence of letters after our name or to, you know, I don't know, then, then nothing changes. It's like, this is, this is active and it's all an experiment. Like there's not just one way to do this. And if anything, we need to find other ways of doing things. And so I think that's really, that's what we've been doing is, is just really very experimental um, and very, which has made it kind of risky, but it's also made it super innovative. Like we are, Lunapad slash Isle is like a case study for feminist business analysis. Like we are in every single, like anybody who teaches that course or anybody who talks about that, we are like it. And 
and that's why, you know, because it's distinctive and, you know, we're not, you know, not just adding on values onto a traditional mainstream business model. We're reinventing the business model from, you know, a values base all the way through the whole company. Yeah, that makes it makes so much sense because, I mean, you can't you can't just bolt on a, a nice value here and there and expect positive outcomes. Nope. No, you cannot. Well, because then you're not, it's kind of, I don't know, it's just window dressing or something. I don't know what that is, but yeah. that's not the business that we're in. But the tricky part about it is that we are running a business in a very radically different way in a world that does not kind of get it in a world that is basically saying, Hey, you know, you should go and pitch to those guys, you know, on Wall Street, and you should sell your company to a huge multinational CPG company, and you should, you know, whatever, and, and we would be celebrated for that. Like our competitors are doing that. And it's, it's kind of awe-inspiring in a way. Like it's it's very exciting, but it's also, you know, okay, then the products get super cheap and I don't know, then they're not sustainable anymore. Like that's, I don't know, right. cheap period underwear or a scourge as far as I'm concerned. Like, hmm. you know, what's the point of producing a product that is supposedly sustainable that is made of virgin polyester that falls apart after half a dozen washes? Like that's not sustainable, but that's what people or a certain kind of person wants and finds attractive. And, you know, that, that race to the bottom in the marketplace that we've seen in so many um, segments. So anyways, that's kind of the downside, but, uh, and that we're just an aspect of what we're dealing with that is really interesting. Like, I mean, it's like life, like nothing's just one way, right? Like it's never just the like, Oh, great. Everything's fantastic. It's like, we are living in these incredible times of dis disruption and opportunity and pain and stress and, and, you know, beauty and magic. And so I, I believe, you know, that, that the change I spoke to earlier that we're seeing socially around menstrual equity, that's happened at the same time as this commercialization, financialization, commodification, if you will, of the fine, you know, reusable menstrual product market. So it's like those two things are kind of, happening at the same time they are products of the same time in history and so to separate one and say this is bad and you know separate from the other and say this is good i think is not the accurate way of looking at it it's like we you know it's the good with the bad it's all here at the same time and so being present to all of it um and just trying to find our footing and and maintain our values within that is what we've tried to do you mentioned that the mainstream capitalist world is set its sights on the industry that you've helped or the segment you've helped create uh, or maybe define even. And so that means you've got massive amounts of money uh, fixing to, to take up space in your market. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I do. And um, so it's interesting. So, okay, so the that's true. And so, I mean, anybody who even it listens to this podcast and then goes on their phone, they're going to start getting served ads on Instagram for a period underwater for sure promise you that. And um, so that's one place, the marketplace of, of the Instagram and the Google analytics and ads and, and whatever, um, and big money coming in and, and that marketplace. And that's a very hard marketplace to compete in, super hard. And when I look at it and I ask myself, who's benefiting from this cheap period underwear? And my answer to that question is Main Street venture capitalists, Google, 
and Meta um, and Amazon and, you know, questionable manufacturers, who knows where in the world. So, okay, I don't think that's a game that I want to win personally. It's not even a game I want to play. Um, on the other hand, we've got this burgeoning market for institutions like governments, like post-secondary institutions, like employers going, hey, we care about menstrual equity and we care about sustainability. And so we're going to invest in sustainable menstrual products and give them away for free to our students, our citizens, um, and so on, our, our team members. And so that way we're like, we've, we've got this marketplace that we have created where instead of trying to go, well, our period underwear, you know, cheaper than yours or they're this or that, you know, it's like all of that just kind of goes away. And we're having a conversation about um, sustainability reporting, which is something that we do really well because we've done a life cycle analysis on all of our products. And so when, you know, somebody buys a bunch of them, we can tell them how many, you know, greenhouse gases have been, you know, diverted and how much energy has been saved and all these things that matter to institutions. And when you do business with them, integrity makes a difference. Like nobody's going to get away with selling them crappy products that fall apart. Like it just won't work. And who wants to, who wants to burden a young student with a product that, that doesn't perform or that is exposing them to PFAS chemicals or whatever. Like there's, there's something reputational at stake in that marketplace where we actually do win because we have that credibility and we have done that work and we have our LCA data and we're our B Corp and, you know, whatever, all those things that actually make a difference as opposed to the just cheaper, cheaper, cheaper world of Instagram. Well, it sounds like it's just finding your group of raving fans of people who get you, people, people who get your vision and yeah, to some degree, right? Yeah, it, it is. And, and in this case, it's, it's twofold because the students themselves who are receiving the products you know, are totally like, get it. They're the ones out marching, you know, and showing us what as, as students saying, hey, we're going on strike for the climate and we're, you know, we're doing these things. So young people do not need to have sustainable choices sort of, you know, explained to them or um, they don't need to be convinced about those things. They just, it's a matter of course. Um, but what's beautiful is that is that these institutions are coming to understand that this is an amazing opportunity for them to exhibit leadership and also meet their stated goals. It's like, you know, it's like, okay, if you want to reduce plastic and you want to reduce your carbon imprint, whatever, like I've got a great way for you to do it that's relevant to at least half of the population of, you know, whoever your constituents may be. Oh, it's interesting. I, I mean, at some level, your your I think your mission was always about trying to create you know a sustainable, positive solution for 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 people who menstruate. Mm -hmm. Period. Right, and do it yeah. the right way. But what you're actually you know where you've come to is like a, a solution, to, uh, like a multifaceted solution to like two distinct groups that are interconnected. I never thought that it would go this way. Like the, to us, the relationship has always been person to person, like individual to individual. And in this case, we're talking to governments and it's fascinating. And um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm really, really enjoying it. And the other piece that I love about it is it kind of flips the whole dynamic of business. Like before it was like, okay, how am I going to charge this much money for, you know, this person, but what if they can't afford it? Like, what if somebody can't afford 
a beautiful organic cotton, you know, pair of $50 aisle period underwear. Well, what if instead of trying to make our products cheaper, which, you know, degrades the product quality or means that one of our team members doesn't get paid as well or whatever, what if we switch out who pays for that product? And that to me is like, that's the masterstroke of genius right there is you're asking people who have money to pay for products to people for people who can't afford them to support the bigger picture of sustainability goals and gender equity. So that's what I call a business model. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Amen. Yeah. So looking back, would you change anything? (laughs) I don't know. I, you know what? I don't have a good, a quick pithy answer for that one. Like it, I I guess I'm going to go with, no, I wouldn't change anything. um, Because I don't, I'm not really sure that things could have been different. Like, I think um, the another thing that happened with Suzanne and I is we had three children between the two of us in sort of the mid 2000s. And at a time in the company's growth, when my husband also came down with cancer, um, not long after that, and we were just hit with a lot of really personal life stuff in at a period when in a traditional business, we would have been really digging deep on um, you know, manufacturing and supply chain and stuff like that. And for us, we, we made a very conscious choice to really want to be present with our families and our kids when they were little and that type of thing. And looking back, would the business have grown, you know, more quickly if we had, you know, yeah, it probably would have, if we hadn't have done that, but I don't regret that because I just don't. And I don't know, we all, there's not just one way to measure success. And that's something I talk about in the book when I talk about radiance in chapter 11 and this idea that we just measure it as, you know, okay, this amount of money or this amount of, you know, this kind of an exit, for example. Um, I, to me, the, the beauty of the work that we've created is not just that kind of final outcome of the, the exit, you know, um, it's what we've done every single day and found joy and meaning and value in it. And I, I love hard work. I do. I, I don't try and I don't believe in trying to find a, a sneaky way around hard things. It's like, there's a pleasure in going through it. And I know that as a sober person now too, like that's a really important part of my life. And, and I see it really clearly that, you know, we, there are no, this mythology of quick money or an easy way out or whatever. It's like you miss the true depth of the experience. Like I'm grateful to have experienced every, pretty much anything that I can think of uh, as part of this entrepreneurial journey from the highs to the lows, to the challenge, to the heartbreak, to the frustration, to the elation, like it's all, it's all there and it is all still happening. And um, I just think it, it just feels really real to me. And I don't think there's one particular formula for quote unquote success or one way that, you know, should be emulated by everybody to achieve a certain level of something. Like, I think that we get to decide those things for ourselves. And I think that we've done that. Oh, I want to personally, um, thank you for all of the immense work that both you and your team have done on not only with the 
product that you offer, but with redefining business in your own way. Uh, the trailblazing, I think, is super important. Not everyone has that vision to see how things can be different. And then once, once you know, once the, once it's understood, then you know, more people can can follow through with what it feels like a more human way to do business, uh, to to meet the needs of. Uh, meet our needs, collective needs, um, martial resources appropriately. And it also sounds like have a rich and fulfilling life at the same time. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, to me, business, it just feels very creative to me. It's, it's an expression, not just of values, but of, and relationships and, but creativity. And I, yeah, that's how I see it. It's a practice to me. It's not just a means to an end or, once we get to a certain level of sales or once we can sell to a certain kind of business, then we've succeeded. It's like your success or whatever you want to call it. It's like, it's a, it's a practice. It's what you do every day. It's how you live your life. And so looking back at the last 30 years of having had just a whole bunch of rewarding days that have felt real where I've done my best and really showed up feels awesome. Well, it's a dramatic contrast to I mean, one late tech giant that I know who died of cancer and a whole lot of regret mm. about what didn't happen in his life. Mm-hmm. And so I think that setting an example of, a, of a profoundly different pattern is, is profound. Oh, thanks, Jalen. Well, yeah. And I, I, I guess I want to hearken back, though, to what I said earlier, like this isn't easy. And in many ways, what I've been able to achieve has been predicated on a pretty significant dose of social privilege. So I didn't just, I don't know, like that we live in a world that favors people who look like me and gives us lots of chances and, um, you know, that type of thing. So I'm, I'm aware of that. And in a way, that's why I chose just the approach that I did with the book again of like just and speak to people directly like for people who do hold privilege in leadership positions and social impact spaces like really be mindful about that and um but thank you because I do feel like we've taken a lot of chances we've I know that Suzanne and I have been uh we've mentored I don't even dozens of people and inspired other dozens to start something and do something um, creative and different and to try and make the world a better place. So I'm really grateful for that too. That's that's something that sounds like a legacy. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Well, that's the thing. And we've never, like, we've always done that. That's always been part of our practice. And people have given us that gift too, of like, that's, and that goes back to that relationship piece that I was talking about. Like, when people share with you, it's not just their, you know, business tips and whatever. It's like they're sharing part of their story with you and part of their soul in a way. And that's what we've imparted to others as well. Because otherwise, I don't know, what's the point? You know what I mean? Like we we no longer live in times where I don't care how much money you have. I really don't. It's like if you if we do not have clean water to drink, we do not have clean air to breathe and we're busy killing each other then what's the point so you've got more toys way to go you know and that's why Yvonne Schuenard what a great example of somebody who could have like grabbed the big prize and sold out to Nike or you know whatever and didn't and found a different way to take all this wealth and channel it towards supporting the planet 
And, and that's, that's my kind of leader. That's who I look to as someone, you know, who's, who really, when the stakes were super high and everybody would have said, oh, way to go. And now you get to go and have your billions and billions of dollars and whatever. It's like that. He's not interested. That's not what he's in it for. And it's not what I'm in it for. Not what Suzanne's in it for. And I, I, I just really want to encourage people to find their way, their expression that doesn't have to be the big, the big story and, you know, the big disruptive thing that everybody talks about makes tons of money. Like that's not actually what necessarily makes a difference in the long run, because we are talking about the long run, right? And the, we need a planet here in the long run. We want to raise you know, that's seven generations, we want to think about the future. So if just making a whole pack of money really quickly with no mind, you know, to sustainability is like, it's, we just can't live in that world anymore. You know, we can't afford it. None of us can. No, we can't. And I think this is, this is the time where, where, you know, people need to look around and see what, what corner of the, of the world that they can lift up. And, you know, I, as I said before, I, I haven't, completely finished your book yet but uh, it's clear to me that it's a it's a great way to extend this conversation about how one how someone might be able to find their way to making a difference and do you have a favorite way in which people can get a hold of it yeah i mean uh, to the extent that people can order through their local independent bookstores is fabulous um the book yes it's available on amazon um I regret to say, but I didn't have much choice when it came to that. Um, but that, yeah, I would order it through like locally black bond books and book warehouse, that type of thing. Um, they, they can get it in within two or three days and, um, and folks can reach me, um, on LinkedIn. I have a website at madelineshaw.ca with lots of ease and, uh, greater good book on Instagram. I'm not a great social media person, but uh, there's a nice presence um, for the book out there. And I love to hear from readers and folks can hit me up on LinkedIn. Okay. That's great. We can be sure that I'm going to put all those links um, on your episode page so that people can easily get a hold of you, your book and all that sort of thing. Cool. Yeah, no, I love it. I thought you asked wonderful questions and you've been, you're so kind and um, yeah, I, I've really enjoyed this conversation. So, and thanks for the whole series that you're doing. It's been amazing. I'm very proud to be part of it. And um, yeah, 